everybody. Happy Thursday to you. This is Brandon Busteed, President of University Partners and Global Head of Learn Work Innovation at Kaplan. And I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. Not only do I have as one of my guests a Bold Leader in Learning, but she's also going to be talking with us about the hundred or so interviews that she's done with college presidents uh, over the last several months. And so I'm delighted to have Sally Amarusa with us. She's the Chief Partnership Officer at EAB. I know those of you in higher ed, if you work at a university, are probably quite familiar with EAB's work. Uh, but Sally, I'd love to just start with uh, giving the audience a sense of you and your background. Uh, mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about, uh, about yourself. Sure. Well, Brandon, first of all, thank you for, for having me here. And um, I am usually the one interviewing you. So this is a nice little uh, turnaround here. Um, as you said, I, I serve as Chief Partner Officer at EAB. Um, EAB is um, an insights and expertise driven firm. Um, and we draw those insights and expertise from a variety of different means, whether it's research, data analytics and technology uh, or data enabled services. Um, and we work primarily in three major areas supporting um, universities, enrollment success, student success, and then institutional success, recognizing that they're all very intertwined. Um, and I serve as an extension of the office of our CEO. Um, my charter is to serve as a strategic advisor to um, presidents and chancellors, their leadership teams and, and their boards. Um, and when COVID hit and my travel schedule and going out to engage with those folks sort of shut down, it was a natural evolution of this sort of Zoom world for me to think about reaching out to those same presidents and chancellors to understand not just the immediate challenges that they were facing, but also some of the enduring dimensions of change that they were anticipating coming out of COVID. Um, and so that was really the provenance of the, the listening tour, if you will. Yeah, well, it's quite a listening tour. Uh, you know, a lot of people, and uh, you're right, like, uh, like you, I have not been on airplanes uh, since March 2nd, and, uh, and I filled lots of that void with Zoom calls. So now I like to joke that I'm an executive platinum Zoom member. Um, but uh, not, not that anybody's striving for that. Uh, but I do think we should have rewards for, for calls, you know, build up, you know, a good reward system. So so let's talk a little bit about what you've heard. You know, this is, I know you interviewed a diverse mix of leaders across different types of institutions all over the country. So I know there's probably some nuances there to apply to their particular context, but what are the issues that are really keeping these leaders up at night? And uh, we'd just love to hear some of the big themes that came from that. Sure, well, one theme was really a sense of pride. Uh, and especially as uh, I was speaking to presidents across the spring, there was a, um, a real sense of appreciation for how their teams had pulled together um, to get students safely um, off campus, online. You know, sometimes it's hard to herd the cats, um, but in this case, all of the constituencies came together with those clear priorities. Um, and some of these schools had to shift in a matter of four days, seven days, 10 days. So extreme agility for an industry not known for agility. Um, there was also pride in how they were supporting their communities um, through COVID, whether it was repurposing a field house to take overflow from a hospital or um, providing free Wi-Fi, not just for their students who might not have bandwidth, but for employees that, uh, you know, in rural areas that might not have it. Um, or uh, shifting research priorities to support some of the, the health needs that were emerging. Um, but 
that quickly went into weariness. Um, so I think there was um, and is a sense of weariness about the, the ongoing onslaught of decisions uh, wow. that this um, crisis, this pandemic brings with it. Um, and then a real um, recognition that the financial impacts, the institutional impacts on the finances were much greater than we initially had anticipated. Those schools that were anticipating 10 million were then revising those to 20 million or 30 million. Right. Um, you know, we had thought that the NACAC changes were gonna be the, the uncertainty driver in enrollments, little did we know. Um, but also that this was accelerating a set of secular trends that were already there before COVID. And so there was a need to really bring some strategic focus there, even in the midst of this crisis, yeah. um, whether that was around online enablement and using this moment to galvanize um, a faculty that had come online very quickly to think about that in different ways um, or the equity issues, right? So this is yeah. where you have pandemics within a pandemic. Um, and so really laying bare the equity issues, it's often been called a digital divide um, by some of the presidents where students going online in, on their, in their student bodies have a very different experience if they're going home to an affluent uh, private bedroom with, with high-speed Wi-Fi versus sharing a room and caring for family members who may be sick or who may have lost their jobs. Um, and so that digital divide has been really um, weighing heavily. Um, and, uh, and then the, the change leadership burdens that are on these presidents, you know, I think they realize that, that it may be a galvanizing moment and opportunity to change, but there are still lots of obstacles to making that actually happen. Right. Yeah, one of the things I'm interested in, you know, your, your comment about weariness, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it in the college presidents that, you know, I've spoken to in the last several months, and I, I organized on a whim just a small group of college presidents I knew as part of a monthly forum where we just get together, we talk about things, and it's just a confidential kind of sharing opportunity. But I, I have to say, you know, I'm very worried about leaders burning out, you know, leaders of all kinds, right, of all types of organizations. But particularly higher education leaders, just because there are so many different constituents they're trying to please with the expectation that they have to, you know, serve all of them. They have to serve all these, as you kind of expressed it, pandemics within a pandemic, right? Like they yeah. can't let any of these balls drop. And yet at the same time, that's a pretty unforgiving thing. So I, what, what, I'm just curious, you know, what, what did you glean from these individuals as leaders as to how they're how they're sustaining their own energy and, you know, they're, you know, just, just being healthy as leaders. Some of it, I think, is being off Zoom once in a while. <laughs> so I do think that Zoom can be emotionally draining in a way that in-person in meetings are not. Um, but it's a real concern. So I, I don't think there are silver bullets here, um, especially for presidents who derive their energy from being with students and from yeah. being with their staff and, and now don't have that opportunity. Um, and it's not just them, it is their teams who are weary. Yeah. Um, you know, faculty are being asked to do so many different things right now to prepare for so many different eventualities. And I, I think about um, Chris Howard at Robert Morris brings up the Stockdale paradox um, and the observation that Stockdale had uh, as a prisoner of war that the optimists perished first. 
And so the, there is a need for leaders yeah. to marry um, pragmatism with optimism, that we will get through this, but it is going to be hard and it's gonna be hard for a while. And when you look at the budget impacts um, that these institutions are gonna to have to bear, it is going to be hard for a while. Um, so this is not a, a sprint. <laughs> it's not like, oh, yeah. let's make it through to the spring and everything is okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know the, the thought that's going through these leaders around, it's not a sprint, you know, it's gonna be a long haul. It's obviously hard to define exactly how long is that long haul, right? I mean, we could be a full academic year. We could be several years in terms yeah. of the full reverberation of what's happening right now. And I, I wonder to what extent are, you know, when you said that, it, it made me think of how university communications, for example, are, to me at least, not widely embracing of that, right? Like communications have been, we're going to open up this fall, and there's like nothing about the spring, or very few, I think, have come out and said, you know, we're, we're going to be online all year, or, hey, I know we're focused on the fall, but what's going to change in the spring? You all should have your expectations set. Like, I know that's not a popular thing for communications mm -hmm. leaders to do, right? To say, oh, this could last a long time. But at what point do we also need to think about managing the expectations of the student body, the parent constituents, the faculty, right? You know, in terms of saying we, we might be in this for the long haul. Like, do you think there's a way to do that? I think it's hard to have nuanced communications that, uh, that get to that. It, it's possible. Um, but, you know, one of the universal comments from presidents was that they were trying to over-communicate through the mm -hmm. crisis. And they recognize the importance of that. But communications were often conflated with decisions. And sometimes they didn't have a decision to communicate. Um, and so it was important for them to understand it was okay to communicate that there was nothing new, right? And that, yeah. that people just needed to feel in the know that you can have a town hall and say, we're still staying the course based on what we know now, but that could change. And here's how we're thinking about things. That's a really hard balance to strike when you're thinking beyond just the fall and spring. I mean, if you're Tim White and the chancellor of the Cal State system and you have the conviction around a course early, um, you know, that benefit to the student body in terms of being able to plan is significant and their families. Um, but some of these presidents really felt the need to preserve the optionality around on-campus experiences if there was a way to make that possible because the students were expressing how much they valued that. So that's understandable as well. It's a really hard balance to strike. Yeah, it's almost like there's a no-win situation, right? You're right, on one hand, you've got universities that communicated early that they were gonna be entirely online that at least allowed students to kind of understand what the plan was, get prepared for that plan, right? There's consistency in that, right? And then there are ones that were so, you know, rightfully in many ways, right? You know, just focused on trying to reopen in whatever form they can. And, and obviously many going through it right now, some, you know, seemingly faring better than others. I, I was saying, you know, uh, to, to a colleague I was speaking with earlier today, this, this pandemic for, for education is, is both a huge experiment and a big test. You know, it's a test of leadership, you know, how well are these leaders then, you know, working with their, you know, various staff and faculty and students to execute on plans? Like, I do think there's going to be a difference between universities that were very well prepared and execute well on their plans, right, versus those who maybe not. So, I mean, it, it you know, it's going to be an incredibly challenging year. And 
I want to go back to your point about what you what you are identifying as the secular trends that have been accelerated yeah. by COVID. Sure. Tell me a little bit more about those. I know you mentioned things like, you know, the financial model of higher ed, but mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure we follow up on that thread a little bit. Well, first of all, the demographic decline, right, which is still out there. Um, and we thought we had until 2026 to really prepare for that and make some strategic decisions around that and to explore alternative uh, revenue streams. Um, and yet, in many ways, COVID has accelerated the financial fragility of families in assessing whether college is even worth it. Um, and so while the demographics might not have changed tremendously, the predisposition to invest in education um, has shifted quickly. Um, so that's one of them. The other is equity, right? So again, the digital divide, but then um, having the, the backdrop of some of the systemic racism issues um, that have come up and then an election year is going to mean that the campus climate is going to be um, quite intense. Um, and that there is a referendum on schools to step up and to address some of the inequities uh, that perhaps have perpetuated this systemic racism that we're seeing um, and that society has, has no more patience for. Um, and then I also think this, um, this lack of differentiation across higher ed, which has come about for many understandable reasons. Um, mission is, you know, the missions are very worthy across these institutions, but when students are really pushing on the value proposition, I heard so many regional public institutions saying, we may not be comprehensive anymore. Mm. We may not have that luxury. So what do we have to step away from? Right. Um, and how do we reconcile that with our mission? So this, this idea of differentiation and really understanding what your students value, actually, I think is a silver lining for students, possibly, if schools can lean into that and provide the student centricity and optionality that helps to serve their needs. Right. I mean, differentiation, your point, it's been a huge issue across higher ed. There's very yes. few institutions where you could name the institution and have somebody very quickly, unaided, yes. articulate exactly what it, what it stands for. I always use Babson as an example. Babson is not a very large campus, right? It's right. not, I mean, it's in Wellesley in the Boston yes. area. But when you say Babson, most people say entrepreneurship, right? Yes. And, yes. and so, you know, that's a unique brand characteristic. They made a yes. conscious effort to invest in that. But there aren't many Babsons out there. And I don't mean just entrepreneurship, but just that have a really clearly defined brand. And it could be, right. you know, they haven't clarified it or it, they've tried to be everything to everybody. And that's that's a difficult place to be these days. It's a very difficult place to be. And, and you know, Michael Porter um, has commented on mission-driven industries conflating mission with strategy. Mm. Um, and yet really the essence of strategy is being able to make trade-offs. And so COVID has created the context by which those trade-offs are necessary for many institutions where they haven't been before. You know, many presidents shared with me, one of the challenges is that we've, we've had this culture of we love all of our children equally, but now we are going to have to bet on some areas, some programs, some initiatives and say no to others. And that is such an anathema to our culture. It seems like almost a Sophie's Choice moment for some of these institutions and, and yeah. it's really difficult, but we have limited resources. We have significant financial pressures. Right. And so those trade-offs and being able to make them strategically is important 
Now, how do you do that in the, the midst of a crisis where you have new decisions that you have to make daily around the crisis itself? Right. Yeah. And so a related question, it's actually just come in from one of the folks joining us is, uh, what's the view from presidents about the calls that we've seen from various parents and students to lower tuition costs if they have to be online for the semester? So you talked earlier about how part of what this pandemic has shown is that for, for many students, not all of them, they've shown they really value the on-campus experience. And if they can't have it the way they want, they're going to defer, they're going to do whatever. Uh, but anyway, I'm just curious, what did you learn from presidents about calls to sure. you know, have a reduced tuition rate for being online? It's a great question. Um, and I think what it did is actually to um, engender a much larger set of questions around pricing and pricing transparency and differential pricing <laughs> in higher ed more generally, um, right? Because one of the problems is that being online is not less costly for universities. In fact, yeah it was more costly across the spring. And in order to improve pedagogically for the fall, these institutions are investing a ton. Um, and so it is not less expensive. And yet for some students, it is less valued. So how do you, you know, how do yeah. you make that go around the block, right? Um, some schools have lowered tuition or provided COVID grants or remote grants uh, in order to recognize this. Um, and so we see a variety of different approaches uh, to providing aid um, and recognizing this. I would say there is also a good set of schools that are looking at uh, pricing generally. Is it time for a tuition reset if our discount rate consistently shows that students aren't paying our list price and yet right. we're, not, we're, we're not getting credit for that in the market, but people think of us as being priced up here Right. And there may be students that um, don't consider us. They don't put us in their consideration set because they don't realize um, that disconnect. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know there's been growing frustration about the, you know, I'll call it the lack of transparency in college pricing. It's complex. And for the yeah. average person who just quickly looks at price tag, you know, if they don't understand some of the nuances, if they don't understand financial aid, they don't understand that a lot of universities, uh, you know, are, are, are doing things like providing both, you know, merit and, and need-based aid, you know, that, that sticker price becomes a brick wall, not a tent that they peek into. And, you know, hopefully, right. you know, that, that, that's something that comes from this is, uh, you know, the other thing that I, I'm curious your thoughts on this, um, you know, I've followed the Purdue example for a long time, you know, frozen tuition for seven going on eight years now, you know, Purdue has become uh, relative to the rest of the Big Ten much more affordable, uh, mm -hmm. and 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 enrollments are is uh, you know all time highs, right? So, mm -hmm. but like that's still not a trendy, popular thing to do. Announcing a tuition freeze, I'm just surprised more institutions haven't tried to make a step like that to kind of signal to the market that like we're, it, we it matters that we try to keep costs down and we keep value high, but like. Do you think we'll see uh, any of that kind of movement where just announces around tuition freezes will, will become more, I'm gonna call it popular? So we have had a number of schools announce tuition freezes uh, that perhaps before we're planning for a 3% increase that had been sort of the annual increase. Um, yes, I do. I think it, it is related to the larger issue around differentiation and pricing matched more to the offer. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we will actually see uh, much more um, rigorous approach to thinking about um, pr 
pricing from the student's standpoint for a variety of different offerings. Um, so whether that's charging extra for certain student success elements that uh, might not be necessary um, or available um, in other uh, realms. So it could actually lead to some disaggregation, maybe good, it may be bad, but it will lead to more transparency. And you're yeah. right, the transparency, unfortunately, is also linked to equity because right. those students and families who are the least um, able to really discern what they're actually going to be able to pay are those that perhaps come from communities where um, they don't have the role models that know about merit aid, that know how to manage that, that maze of, um, of costs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, one of the major points, I think, where uh, the irony, of course, is that for like a lot of Ivy League institutions that, that have lots of available aid for need-based aid, yes. you look at the price tag and for a family that's never had anybody go to college, right? You know, no experience with this. Right. They don't even explore it. Right. But the irony is you probably have a better chance of getting a full ride at a Harvard, right? Than, yes. You know, because, most yeah, other institutions kind of, because of the, the, the funds they have available to do that. Exactly right. Um, exactly so right. I want to touch on one, one other secular trend that was, that was you know, here, uh, you know, headwinds in the face of higher ed before COVID. And now I also think is accelerated. I'm curious what you heard from presidents. And that's around the critique of higher education, that graduates are not work ready. And, you know, look, uh, you, you and I have had lots of conversations around this, Sally. It, you know, this right. is not just a purely turn higher education into, you know, vocational and technical training. It, it, it's right. not that, right? It's a much more nuanced thing. Employers value a broad liberal education, but they also want to see graduates who've had an internship, a co-op, an externship, whatever it might be, that have done long-term projects that have maybe some specific industry skill set that's enhancing their broad education. Tell me, tell me what you're hearing and seeing on kind of the, the work readiness critique of higher ed, because in some ways the, the price and the value proposition are deeply embedded, at least from the research I was involved in in my Gallup days yeah. around, is it relevant and does it help me, you know, propel me from a career perspective? Yes, well, and I have to commend you on that work um, because I think that work was really such a clarion call for higher ed to realize that it, it isn't an either or, um, so even schools that are completely committed to the liberal arts need to be engaging and thinking about workforce readiness. Um, so I, I actually don't find that element of it to be controversial. Um, has this accelerated it because of the financial fragility of families and their need to see outcomes and employability? Absolutely. Uh, and so I think from a, a um, parent, parents and students standpoint, there's probably more clarity around that as part of the value proposition, not for all schools, right? right. As we talked about, there are many different segments, but for a large segment of them. Um, and so that probably has accelerated more from that perspective. Uh, but that, that outcomes marketing and that workforce alignment, I think was, um, was already really a huge wave. Um, and if anything, it's just um, been accelerated. Yeah, and I know one of the other things you mentioned to me was that EAB recently uh, did some some programming with new college presidents and provosts. Yeah. These are folks who, as you said, uh, literally became presidents or provosts for the first time in their career. And oh, here you go. Here's a pandemic. Enjoy. Um, <laughs> so tell us, uh, tell us, how, like, 
what do you how do you prepare a brand new college president or provost for what's ahead just i would love to hear more such a such an interesting question because i don't think we do a good job of preparing presidents in in, a, in normal circumstances <laughs> many right. of the experiences that they have leading up to the presidency are very different than how they're going to be spending their time as a president right. um, but in this context you know some of these presidents were um, appointed in February, early March, and then suddenly the world turned upside down. Um, so a couple of things happened. One is they started their jobs earlier than anticipated. And by started, I mean, they were brought into conversations early and that may be an advantage. So it's much more of an overlap with their predecessors. Right. Now, I think one of the real challenges they face now is there is a set of very difficult decisions that they need to make, particularly in institutions that are facing really significant questions around financial sustainability and closing big budget gaps that their predecessors, even with the best of intentions, couldn't get through before um, departing. And so to come in as a new leader and to say, okay, the first thing we're going to do is to, you know, furlough <laughs> staff and cut salaries, um, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, and then the listening tour that is really such a, a ritual of new presence to be able to deeply understand the culture and the DNA of a place and try to do that through Zoom, I think is, is such a challenge. Um, so they are, you know, they are um, both energized, but they have some trepidation. Um, they definitely have some trepidation. Yes. Yeah. I wonder too, like on the glass half full side of that equation, right? When you're a brand new leader in a crisis, you have the advantage of, you know, I, I, we have to do this. You know, I have no choice, right? And you don't have the, the baggage of, you know, having, you know, operated the university in a different context and era, right? Uh, you know, I mean, you, you, and you're also, I think maybe, and it's probably a very short uh, period of time, you're given a bit of a benefit of the doubt from your board of trustees, from a senior leadership team, from, you know, faculty and students, right? As a new leader, uh, you know, I think there's probably some level of, you know, trust, benefit of the doubt for a period of time, like, yeah. And so, you know, in, in, in some respects, especially if you're going to have to make furlough announcements and layoffs and I, that's never a good thing, regardless of whether you've been there for 20 years, two years or two days. But uh, but I wonder if being the new person doesn't have some, you know, some inherent advantages that way. Um, I think you're right there that there there is sort of latitude given to a new leader, um, but context is everything as well. Right. So coming into a place where there is distrust between administration and faculty means that even if you're the newcomer, you've got to really tread carefully and rebuild yeah. that trust before you're making big decisions here. Um, you know, a unionized environment where you may have collective bargaining agreements coming up um, soon is a, is a different context. Um, the decision-making style of your predecessor and if he or she had been there for 30 years um, or if the, the institution had been through six presidents in the last six years, Right. All of that context is important and needs to be considered as you're thinking about your first hundred days. Right. Yeah. And at first hundred days on Zoom, nonetheless. So that, you know, as you mentioned, complicates things greatly. So um, so I'm curious, one of the other questions we just got was about, you know, what what's happening with colleges that are in college towns, right? You know, what what insights have you have you guys gathered at EAB around 
what's happening within the, you know, the quintessential college town, because many of these universities or colleges are the bedrock of their economy, uh, the, you know, the jobs, the, I mean, they are the, you know, the communal, you know, centerpiece. So what, what do we know about college, you know, the college town and the community versus, you know, those who are more, you know, urban universities that have less of that type of a direct relationship? One clear theme that I heard from the presidents was around the primacy of place, whether urban or rural. Now, there may be some advantages to being a rural institution right now, since so many of the hotspots in COVID are urban, but this recognition that uh, perhaps I haven't been foregrounding place as an advantage as much and that we are part of this place. Um, so whether it's, you know, thinking about throwing away the agrarian calendar because your place is a place you want to be in the summer. So right. why are we sending students home right when it's the most beautiful time to be in New England, for example, and we keep yes. them here across the worst months. Yes. Um, so I do think that uh, type of thinking about place, um, but it also is a constraint when you are the economic engine of a town and you may have to make some difficult decisions around staff and faculty. And then you go into town and the, your favorite restaurant is owned by that faculty member's spouse. Right. And so there is this integration into the fabric of communities that makes those decisions even more gut wrenching. Um, on the other hand, I think this is uh, to to Gordon Gee's we're all land grants now um, call it is a time for colleges and universities to help drive regional recovery mm -hmm. um, in the same way that they were helping to address the COVID issues there's an opportunity, and we know that the narrative around higher ed has not been positive for the last decade. I don't think that war is gonna be won um, by a, a louder voice on social media. I think it is a ground game and that there is an opportunity here to think about different avenues. It may be how your research starts, um, uh, promote startups, right? right? That drive the, the, um, the region's economy or looking at industry partnerships in a different way to your earlier point. And so there is a recognition of both the, the challenges, but also the opportunities um, that this recognition of place brings. Yeah, there's, there, I, I, first of all, I love your idea about throwing out the agrarian calendar. I mean, I think this is the moment where we look at that across K-12, across yeah. higher ed. I mean, there really, there really isn't other than tradition and history, right? And yeah. people getting used right. to it. There's no yeah. reason why we should have an agrarian calendar. In fact, you could argue you know, we, we, we shouldn't have a four-year bachelor's degree anymore because if you right. did it year round, it would be done in three years and right. highly accomplishable in three years, right? So, exactly. you know, yes, and you're right. Then we have these housing lags where the summer there's no one in housing and then, you know, and then the rest of the year, we, we don't have enough housing for students, right? So thinking right. about spreading that out where you could have students, for example, who do online in the fall and spring and then come to yeah. campus in the summer, for a differentiated price tag, exactly right? I mean, right. there's a lot of options there. So I'm just glad that you mentioned agrarian calendar. I'm done with it. Uh, and so I agree. I agree. And in fact, one really um, bold thinker uh, up in New England actually was thinking about the implications for academic redesign. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if in the near future we could create a student centric calendar, maybe using the carousel model that is more common right. in the online space. And if the student really should be doing an internship in the spring for whatever reason, because their career interests um, lend themselves to that, then maybe they come for the summer and the fall and they're online in the spring. 
Um, and right. we can build that kind of path for them based on what they want to accomplish, what they are willing and able to pay. Um, and that really is the kind of differentiation that I'm hoping and the kind of innovation that I'm hoping comes out of this, this challenging time. Yeah, well, I, I love those examples and ideas. And, uh, and speaking of time, we're, we're, we're now at our time. I told you the, these 30 minutes feel like 10. Um, but for those of you who want to catch uh, more of Sally's insights and EAB's insights, she's a, a regular guest on EAB's Office Hours podcast, which can be found anywhere that you're looking for your favorite podcast. And next week on Bold Leaders and Learning, as a wonderful segue, we're going to have Kevin Ross, the president of Lynn University. And it just so happens that Sally is the person who <laughs> introduced me to Kevin uh, as one of the innovative college presidents that are out there. So, um, so it just so happened that we had you both scheduled back-to-back -back weeks, but uh, how apropos. Sally, thanks so much for joining Thank us you. today. Thanks, everybody, for spending some time with us. And we'll catch you next Thursday, same time. Thanks so much. Thank you.